We're continuing today our uh, sermon series on the book of Ephesians. And if you have a Bible, you can turn over to Ephesians 1. We're going to be reading verses 15 through 23. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, it's printed out in the bulletin for you. Um, Last week, we wrapped up that section from verses 3 to 14 where Paul was just going on and on, you know, this run-on sentence about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and how each person of the Trinity is involved in our salvation. It was, we, we took some high heights there. We went up to Mount Everest, so to speak, uh, in the Bible. Uh, we're not going to come down this morning. We're going to stay up on Everest because uh, Paul, while he's up there, wants to tell the Ephesians precisely how he prays for them. There's a wonderful lesson this morning in that. Uh, number one, you should pray for each other. It's a huge part. All of us should be praying one for another. But also, from time to time, it's good to tell people what you're praying for them. Right? And that's what Paul does here. As a good pastor, a good Christian, he says, here's what I have been praying. And I think what you'll hear might blow your mind today. So let's read the word. For this reason, uh, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in his saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Wow. What a prayer, right? Uh, I know when I read Paul's prayers, I think, man, I don't know how to pray, apparently. Um, Because to pray like this is a whole other level. Um, I want you to notice how much time he spends describing the power of God that he's praying the Ephesians would understand. Uh, No doubt you've heard this phrase. It's almost a cliche now. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Everybody everybody has heard that. Uh, Best I can tell, the first person to say it was a man named Lord Acton in England in the 1800s. Uh, could have been before that, but it's become almost a cliche when you say it, everybody's head nods. I agree with that, but I want to tell you, I don't think the Bible fully agrees with that. I don't think the Bible fully agrees with it. Case in point, God himself. Uh, there is no one in the world that can claim absolute power like God can claim it. And yet God's exercise of his power is, is not absolutely corrupt. It's absolutely good. In fact, the Bible would say where we human beings have a problem with power, and we do, right? We have a massive problem with power. It's not because of power itself. It's because of us. Uh, The better statement is corrupt people corrupt power, absolutely, right? That's probably the better statement. 
But God, who has absolute power, he's able to exercise it with perfection, with goodness, and with grace towards his creation and towards his people. And so Paul says to the Ephesians, I'm praying for you because I've heard of your faith and I've heard of your love for the saints. Translation, I heard that you're true Christians. I've heard that you've been converted, you believe in Jesus. Uh, Those, by the way, this is a sidebar in the sermon, but I I want to put it in front of you. Those two things are the vital signs of a true Christian. There in verse 15, that you would have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you would trust him alone for your salvation, and that you would actually love the saints that he loves, that you would love your fellow Christians and have all the affection towards them that is proper for the family of faith. Those are two vital signs of being Christian. Paul says, I've noticed you've got it. I want to encourage you, but I want you to know I'm praying for you that you may know God more and more, that you wouldn't just stop with that, but that you would continue to progress through the Holy Spirit, that you would know God more deeply. And I want you to know the hope to which he called you when when you first became a Christian. I want you to know the inheritance that you're going to get in the future. But I want you to especially know the immeasurable greatness of the power that he's working towards you right now. Uh, The reason why I think he doesn't spend time on the first two, the hope and the inheritance, is because he's already been talking about that. He talked about that from verses 3 to 14. Now he wants them to understand how God's power is put to work on behalf of his people. Listen to what one writer says about the Ephesians. He says, If there was one thing the Christians in Ephesus felt they lacked, it was probably power. Listen to what he says. They were few in number as Christians. Christianity was new at this point. They were probably marginalized throughout the society. Possibly even some of them had been disinherited by their families. But nothing less than the exceeding greatness of God's power was towards them or perhaps in them. And Paul is here struggling to convey in human language the greatness of this power. As a pastor, Paul understood that God's people's greatest need, God's people's greatest need was to anchor themselves, anchor their lives in the grace of Jesus. Christian doctrine or teaching is foundational to Christian living because it anchors us deeply in the midst of life's storms. This is the perspective of the life of faith, and it is breathtaking. So let's talk about it this morning. What good would it do you to know that you are anchored in the power of God working in you every single day, the same power that he used to raise Jesus from the dead? If you look at your bulletin, there are three questions I want to answer today. Uh, First of all, what characterizes God's power? Secondly, how can we more fully benefit from it? And thirdly, how can we live in light of it, okay? What characterizes God's power? How can we more fully benefit from it? And uh, what uh, can help us or how can we live in light of it? Uh, First of all, let's look at the power itself. Uh, Starting there in verse 19, uh, Paul describes the power that he's talking about. And first thing he says is, it's God's power, therefore it is immeasurably great power. Do you see that? I want you to know... What is the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who are, who are believers in Christ? Uh, this is kind of getting us to something foundational and very important about God that the Bible reveals. And at first, you're going to be like, this is, this is deep, Stan, but I want you to hang with me. 
Anything that the Bible says is true about God is true about God in the same way everything else the Bible says is true about God is true about God. You got me? Let me say it again. Everything the Bible says is true about God is true about God to the same degree and in the same way that every other thing that the Bible says about God is true about God. Uh, So you can't do this. This is a move we often make. My God is a God of love, not of power, not of justice, not of wrath. My God is a God of love. Or somebody else might say, my God is a God of justice and not love. He's not that mamby-pamby, you know, God. He's a God of coming in and, you know, kicking butt and taking names. But the Bible says you can't do that. Because when the Bible says God is love and when the Bible says God is power, powerful, when the Bible says God is just, when the Bible says God is full of wrath against sin, when the Bible says that God is wise, it means he is equally so of all. There is no sort of greater or lesser attributes or characteristics of God. They're all equally powerful. You say, well, okay, why does this matter? Because when we try to turn down the volume on one or the other, which we inevitably do because our minds are so tiny, we diminish our ability to be in awe and to be humble before God. And so here Paul says, I want you as as Christians, Ephesians, and he would say the same thing to us this morning. I want you to know just how immeasurably great the power of God actually is. God is the creator of all things, the creator of the whole universe. And he currently reigns over all things. Just like God himself is infinite. He has no boundaries. He has no limits. Just like God himself is eternal, he had no beginning or no end. Just like God himself is unchangeable, he doesn't vary from day to day. So his power is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. No boundaries, no beginning, no ending, and no variation from time to time, place to place, or day to day. Always and forever the same. Full power over all things. You know, sometimes it's good for us to stand in front of the, the, the grandeur of God and just be quiet, right? That's a good thing. Uh, it's something we don't do very much, I, I fear. Um, there's been a few times in my life where I've felt it especially, especially strong. Um, usually always when I fly in an airplane, I get this feeling. I, I don't know about you. Are you a window seat person or are you an aisle seat person? I don't know. I'm a window person, and, and not everybody is. I don't mind being closed in there, as long as I can look out and see what I'm flying over the top of, because I love it. I love looking down and seeing the cars that are about that big, you know, the houses that when you stand there may seem like mansions, that they look like nothing. They look like doll houses. One time I even flew over the Rocky Mountains in Canada on the way to Japan, because they take you kind of a strange route to Japan, and the Rocky Mountains in Canada are huge. But in a plane, they look small. I love that experience because it reminds me that what might seem big to us seems not so big to God, including me. I seem big to me. My problems seem big to me. My successes seem big to me and praiseworthy. My failures seem big and they haunt me. But to God, in in, in light of his immeasurably great power, they seem probably next to nothing. He cares about them, but he's not overwhelmed by them because his power is infinitely great. Another place that I feel this is when I start thinking about astronomy. And I love watching like little programs about 
uh, outer space. Do you know that today the estimate of the amount of, of galaxies in the universe is three trillion? They think there's three trillion, with a T, galaxies in the universe. They'll probably add more by the time we're done with the service today because they're always discovering new. And did you know that in our galaxy alone, there are 300 billion stars? And our sun is one of the, is one of the smallest, if not the smallest, of those within our galaxy. 300 billion stars in our galaxy, 3 trillion galaxies in the universe and counting. God is big. God is majestic, and sometimes the best thing you can do for your heart is just to stand before him and say, Lord, you are God and I am not. You're the king and I am not. Your power is great. But here's, this is not all that Paul says, though. Paul says this great power that's immeasurably great, he says, look at it, verse 19, it is toward us who believe. And that word toward is awesome. I mean, it could mean it is in us who believe or it, it is in, going into us. It could also mean it is faced toward us. And this is showing something very profound. The power of God is not only immeasurably great, but it's also immeasurably trustworthy and good. We don't like power, typically. We don't like authority. We, we're taught, you know, um, from childhood to question it, to resist it to hate it, to complain about it, to vote it out, all those kind of things, right? We think power is just not a good thing, except when we get it. Are you like, are you like me in that way? Uh, I, I don't mind having unlimited power, but I don't want anybody else to. And in fact, I like it, I, I like it so much that when I want to do something and I can't do it, I'm frustrated because I don't have unlimited power. Are you that way? In fact, the Bible says the way we handle power is a window into what sin has done to our hearts. We resist real and good power while wanting to seek to gain it for ourselves. Paul is saying as Christians, we've got a different way of thinking. We've got a whole different mindset that God has lit up in our hearts and minds through the Holy Spirit to see that God's power is not only the only one that's infinitely great, but God's power is also aimed for the good of us, his people. God is working constantly in our lives and working constantly in the world to bless his people through the exercise of his great power. And in fact, Paul gives a few examples of that, which are right there in the passage. He says, first of all, just take the example of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's a, I mean, y'all, what is a greater display of power than that? If that event really happened on a Sunday 2,000 years ago, there's nothing that has ever happened in the history of the world that could compare to it. God turned death back on itself and raised a man from the dead, never to die again, and gave him glory. And Paul says, look at that. God, clearly God's power is exercised for the good of his people. And then Paul says, look at when Christ ascended into heaven and was seated uh, above all the rule and authority and given a name above every name. That also is an example of God doing something powerful for the good of people because we learn that Christ is seated in heaven interceding for us, ruling the world for the good of his people, the good of his church. Paul also points out in, in, in verse um, 
It's 21 20, or 22, that all things are under the feet of Christ. He is currently reigning as head over all things. Why? For the benefit of his church. The power of God is both immeasurably great and unfailingly trustworthy. Absolute power does not corrupt absolutely, it turns out. It turns out the one who actually has absolute power is absolutely pure, good, faithful, dependable. So this morning, I think this is an invitation to stand in front of the majesty of God. And I think it's also an invitation to ask ourselves, are we trusting in this one who has great power? With our personal lives, you know, we're we're being invited out of this suspicion about power, this desire to want to get it all for ourselves and not share it with anybody else. We're invited out of all that and into a life that says, God, I acknowledge and I love that my life is in your hands. Do you love it this morning? That your life is in the hands of the God who made trillions of galaxies full of hundreds of billions of stars in each? Who looks on the mountains and they're like tiny little hills? Do you trust him? Now, where the rubber meets the road in that is, are you trusting him right now with your life? Like, like with your circumstances? It's one thing to say, yeah, I trust God because I'm in church and I'm supposed to say that. It's another thing to say, God, even the things I don't understand in my life, I'm all in. I'm pushing all the chips into the middle of the table because I know that you can be trusted with it. That's the first thing. What characterizes God's power? It's an unlimited power that can be trusted as well as adored. Secondly, how do we benefit more fully from it? And the short answer is, uh, Paul is eager that they would know the power of God more deeply. Uh, The way you benefit from God's power in your life and in the world is that you know that it's at work within you. Uh, Now the word know that Paul uses uh, there in verse um, 17, and then again uh, in, in verse 18 he uses the word know, uh, is, can just mean you know like a fact about something, like you ask a question and you give an answer because you know the answer. But often in the Bible those words are used for personal knowledge, like a relationship kind of knowledge. And I think that's the one Paul's talking about because of what he says there. Uh, In verse 17, I want you to have your eyes opened in revelation of the knowledge of him. You see that? The knowledge of him. It's personal knowledge. It's not just, I want you to know some facts. But I actually want, I'm praying every day for you that God would open your eyes so that you would know him more deeply. Personal. Uh, that That the power of God would not just be a thing out there, a theory. But that personally in here, I would embrace the fact that God is at work in me. Uh, This past year when we went to the beach as a family in the summer, my four-year-old Xander was three years old at the time. We were in the surf playing and we were in very shallow water because it was was low tide and uh, we were playing around. and, And Xander, when he got in the water, just started flailing around, acting like he was drowning and just, oh, I can't swim, I can't swim. Uh, I, I was crouched down, you know, so it looked like the water was deeper than it really was. And Stacy and I just looked at Xander and said, Xander, just stand up. 
Just stand up. Have you ever seen a kid do that? They, they get in the water like, ah, and then they stand up and they're like, oh. And, and, and the water literally was at Xander's calf, which for me was at my ankles, right? You know, or somewhere thereabouts. What Paul is saying here is kind of like that. Xander had the power to stand up, but he didn't know he had the power to stand up. And so he didn't stand up. Instead, he sank or sank, right? Felt like he was sinking. And so often in our our Christian life, so often in my life, I am sinking in circumstances when I ought to be standing. Because the power that has been gifted to me, the power that is working in my life is really there. I just don't realize it on a personal level. Let me ask you, where are you sinking when you should be standing? Where are you sinking in your life right now where you should be standing? Paul's saying something profound here. He's saying that when you become a Christian, you have to have a certain degree of knowledge to have faith. But the knowledge, the extent of the knowledge you can have of God doesn't in there. It's not capped there. You know, you, becoming a Christian is not a one and done deal. Like I, I accept Jesus into my heart and boom, I'm ready for heaven. I mean, you are ready for heaven if God, you know, intended to take you at that moment. But the plan of God often is not that you would go immediately to heaven when you become a Christian, but that you would spend a lifetime learning more, growing more deeply in intimate acquaintance with what he is doing in your life. And here Paul says, to be a Christian, you've got to think but also have the eyes of your heart enlightened by the Holy Spirit. you got to believe, but you also got to be searching for more answers from the Scriptures as to what God is like and what He's up to in people's lives. If you're not doing both of those, and sometimes that's a delicate dance, because sometimes we can be all, like we talked about last week, we can be all spirit. Oh, Lord, make me feel the feels that come along with God, you know, come along with knowing you. But we don't spend a whole lot of time thinking things through. Other times we can be really deep in thinking, but not asking God, Lord, you're going to have to open the eyes of my heart. If I'm truly going to understand, I can know but not know unless the Holy Spirit opens my eyes. You've got to have both of those, Paul is saying. And when, when the Spirit comes in and does both of those things, causes a Christian to think through what God has done for him and done for her, and the Holy Spirit lightens up our hearts to see it clearly, that's when the knowledge of God's power becomes real. And like Xander, we can, okay, the resurrection power of Jesus is in me, I'm going to stand up. The one who sits enthroned on high is there for me, okay, I'm going to stand up. The one who rules the universe is ruling for us, his people, believers, so that we will be brought one day to glory. Okay, I don't have to sink. I can stand. Do you see? I love, I actually really love the phrase there uh, in verse 19 and 20. He uses the word power three times, three different words for power right in a row. You can can see it in your Bible there, uh, three different forms of the word power. Uh, the word might, the word working, the word work, all those are actually three versions of the word power in Greek. It's as if Paul is saying, look, I want you to know this. The power of his powerful power is in you. The power of his powerful power is in you. When Jesus rose from the dead, he rose 
so that you could overcome death just like he did. Y'all hear that? Jesus rose from the dead so that we, his people believing in his name, could also overcome death just like he did. When Jesus ascended on high and under his feet were put all the rulers and authorities and powers and dominions, he did so so that those might also come under our feet one day. That they would not be able to hold us captive. Which, by the way, that point would have been very, very sharp for the Ephesians. Uh, Ephesus was a city drunk on power. The Ephesians probably didn't feel like they had power now that they had become Christians, but they wanted it because they were trained in a city that was drunk on power. It was the home of the Temple of Diana, the goddess, the great goddess, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In the, the worship of the pagan gods back then, everything was about power. It was about tapping into the power of the gods so that you could have power to do things in life. So much so that the, some of these folks were ingrained from childhood that if you don't worship Diana, your crops won't grow. If you don't worship Diana, your kids will get sick. All those things were ingrained in their mind. And they had cut themselves off from all those things to follow Jesus. They felt powerless, but they were in a city that felt like they had power in all kinds of bogus ways. Uh, they've also found in the city of Ephesus the ruins of a statue of the emperor Trajan with his foot on the world. They thought Roman power was where it was at in Ephesus. And again, these Christians had cut themselves off from that power. They said, Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is Lord. And so Jesus is saying, look, when Jesus, or Peter, Paul, I'm naming everybody in the Bible, Joseph, Mary, you know, when Paul said... When Jesus was raised and his feet came over the world, truly, not like Trajan who just wanted to think of himself that way. Jesus' feet really were over the world. Your feet also were placed over the world. Not in some weird way that we can go around and sort of name and claim whatever we want. Not in a weird way, but in a real way, we share in union with Christ the power that he has. That same power is at work in us. As he reigns right now, the Bible says this, y'all, we reign with Christ. And we will evermore reign with him. Let me ask you, where are you sinking? Where are you sinking? The Bible says, hey, you can stand up. Xander, you can stand up. It's like four inches thick compared to the water compared to the immeasurable greatness of God's power. And that power has been given to you. But as a Christian, you have got to apply yourself to trying to know that at the heart level, not just the head level. And that is the business of our everyday lives. Isn't that not the business of our everyday lives? To grow more and more in the knowledge of God? So that as we understand his ways, as we understand his character and attributes, we would become more comforted, more holy, more zealous, more loving towards him and others. All, those, all the fruit of the Spirit come about as we grow in the knowledge that the Holy Spirit gives. Where are you sinking when you ought to be standing? Lastly this morning, how can we live in light of his power? You said, well, you just told us that. No, there's a little bit more that I want to tell you as we close. 
Uh, look at verse 22. Uh, this is a brilliant little phrase, and if you get to what Paul is saying, I think it'll, it'll revolutionize the way you think about your relationship to God. It says, uh, God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to who? To the church, which is his body, the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let me try to break down what Paul is saying. Okay, God, when he, when he rose, raised Jesus from the dead and, and seated him in heavenly places, he put everything in creation under the feet of Christ. He was trying to bring together into one all the things that he had created so that he could bring them back under his lordship and bring a new creation about. But in a very special way, God put all things to the church under him as the head. Okay? The world may be under Jesus' feet, but as a believer, Jesus is your head and you are his body. Do you see the difference? The world is under his feet. Praise God, that's a good thing. But even better, isn't it, to be the body and he's the head. Because that signifies a personal, a really personal spiritual, yes, but personal and real relationship. Uh, if you cut off your head, what happens? Body dies, right? Also head dies, right? I mean, it all dies. Everything dies. If you sever a head from a body, all dies. When Paul says there in verse 23, the church is Christ's body, which is the fullness of him, it could be taken in either sense. Uh, commentators on this passage have always debated this. Does he mean the church is, the, is his body, the fullness, meaning Jesus fills it with all his good things, like the head does the body? You know, the head supplies so much, it's the control center, it supplies so much to the body. Or does he mean the body is the fullness of him, meaning the body sort of completes him? And people have actually debated that. Uh, now, I don't know of any other place in the Bible where it would say that the church completes Christ. And so maybe that's not exactly what it means, although some people, even like John Calvin, believed it meant that. I think both of them are true, though. Uh, if Jesus is the head of the body, what is a head without his body? And Jesus loves his people. Jesus loves his people. Maybe it's not saying that here, but at least it's true. Jesus loves his people. He loves us so much that he's there to fill us with all the good things that we need. And us being filled by him is something that deeply satisfies him. It gives Jesus great joy. Not just to have all things under his feet, but to have his church as his body. And so, y'all, it's not just the fact that God is saying, stand up. The power of God is at work in you. He's saying, no, stand up. You are in an intimate relationship with the person who exercises the power of God. Personal communion. I mean, the Bible calls it a marriage between Christ and the church. But it even goes beyond marriage. Because in a marriage, we say the two become one flesh. But we know, I mean, they, they, you literally don't become one flesh, right? It, it, it's kind of a metaphor of oneness and unity, which is a very deep unity. But it's a metaphor. Jesus also says, you're like vine and branches. You're like head and body. That's, that's beyond even just the marriage relationship. You are actually connected to Jesus Christ. So that whatever goes for him goes for you and us. Whatever goes for us goes for him. 
We are bound together with ties that are deep. His nourishment coming down into us so that we can grow in our life of praise and sacrifice of praise back up to him so that his heart is filled with joy at the sight and sound of the people that he has redeemed. Can you believe that? And yet we're treating Jesus like he's the Facebook friend. We pop into church, pop into the Bible, read his wall, you know, look at the posts, you know, look at his Instagram and like a few things, make a couple comments and then go about our business. When Jesus is saying, no, no, no. That's the way people who are under my feet may act towards me. But for you, believers, you're my body. You're never disconnected from me. Everything that's mine is yours. You ought to live in dependence on me because of that. Every step of the way, every part of your life. I'm your head. You ought to submit to me in everything. I mean... Let me ask you a few questions. Let's just end this way. I'll ask you a few questions. You might write them down and think about them. These are just testing questions. Am I treating Jesus the way he's supposed to be treated in my life? Here's the first question. Do you rely on Christ for all the good in your life? Do you believe good can be found anywhere else? Can it be found apart from him? Second question, do you seek the enjoyment of God in heaven as your happiness? Or do you seek other things? If Jesus is our head and we're the body, then the, the main thing in life is knowing God. That's the main thing. That's, that's number one. And sometimes we're looking for happiness from careers and paychecks and vacations and, you know, even lesser things. Netflix shows. <laughs> All kinds of trivial things. Third question, are you eager to please him? Is that the thing you're most eager to do? If so, fourth, you know, fourth question, do you pay careful attention to his word? Like careful attention. He's our head. He's our head. What he has to say matters more than what anybody else has to say. Last question. Do you really want, are you devoted to a life of holy separation, holy devotion to him? In another letter, Paul says, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. That's what he's talking about here. Not only does he have immeasurably great power that's towards us, we can know that power and stand up when we, when we should be and not sink through the circumstances of life, but also we are connected by the most intimate bond with the one who has the power. Amen? Let's pray this morning.